In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says of Jesus these words. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of thing that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is something that the Christian and Missionary Alliance affirms. We believe, and we pointed out in our first two points in our statement of faith, that Jesus is God. The first point of our statement of faith says there is one God who is infinitely perfect, existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And just let me give you a little uh, aside here. It's not Father, Son, Holy Spirit in a hierarchy. There's no hierarchy in the Trinity. If there's a hierarchy, then that means two of them aren't God. If one of them is the boss of the other two, then the other two aren't all powerful. They don't have all authority. One God existing eternally in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The second point of our statement of faith, just the first two sentences of it say this. Jesus Christ is the true God and the true man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, we affirm this. And my thought process is, is that everybody in this room who's born again affirms this truth too, or as well. But I've got an issue with this. I don't think that we actually live like we believe this claim. I mean, if Jesus is God, then what difference is it making in the life that I'm living? If Jesus is God, what difference is it making in the life that I'm living? Church, I, I don't think that we have the kind of knowledge 
about Jesus being God that we need to have as Christians in America, as Christians in Pennsylvania, as Christians in western Pennsylvania, and dare I say as Christians in Venango County. There are not three types of knowledge, or two types of knowledge as a lot of people believe. People think there's head knowledge and heart knowledge. I don't agree with that at all. Neither does the 4-H. Right? 4-H clubs, anybody familiar with 4-H clubs? Raise your hand. Okay. Head, hands, heart, health, right? The health isn't knowledge, but there is a head knowledge, an intellectual understanding. There is a heart knowledge where it becomes belief. And I believe the majority of us have this heart knowledge where it becomes a sincere belief. But what we are lacking is hand knowledge. Hand knowledge is the type of knowledge that goes out into the community last Sunday and paints a park. Hand knowledge is the type of knowledge that goes out into the community last Sunday and sees Corey get saved and takes her down to the Allegheny and baptizes her. Hand knowledge is the type of knowledge that transforms lives. It is knowledge lived out. And I would challenge you today that there are probably areas in your life that you do not have hand knowledge of Jesus being God. I know there's areas of my life. I want you to understand I'm not up here accusing you, pointing my finger at you, because when I'm pointing my finger at you, there are three of them pointing back at me. So I preach the sermon to myself first. I don't know the, the reason for there not being hand knowledge, but I think it's because a lot of Christians have never given a lot of thought to what the implications of this are. I mean, we acknowledge it, we write it down in our creeds, we do all of these things, right? But it, yet it seems to make no practical difference in our lives. And I think it's because we're not giving it the thought that we need to give it. Amen? That's why we need to turn to the scriptures today and wrestle with whether or not we really believe with all of our being that Jesus is God. So I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Your translation may be a little different. That's okay. Here's what it says in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, your God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. 
Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot in this passage of Scripture about Jesus and who He is. But Father, we confess that it may not be making the difference in our lives that it needs to make. And so we ask you today first, Lord, that you would help me to to exposit what all of this means. And Lord, that transformational knowledge would come out of it. Not that just merely hits us in the head. Not that makes us cry, Lord, but that makes us go out into the community and live like we're born again. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. So there's this question, is Jesus God? I mean, let's just start like we don't even know anything. And we just ask this question. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? Now, in verse 5 and 6, it points out some, some very interesting things about Jesus. It says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him like a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings all the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, verse 5, we see there that Jesus was begotten by God the Father. Literally meaning that he's the born son of God. Now, we're going to get a little heady. I get a little heady sometimes when I'm preaching. Get a little, you know, thinking. It's the thinking man's game when we read the scriptures. And then we, then we move it out of the head and we move it down. So let's look at this intellectually for a minute, right? The Greek word that is translated begotten here is the perfect tense of ganao. Now, I feel it's necessary to explain what the perfect tense of a verb in the Greek language is. Okay? So the perfect tense of a verb in the Greek language is a tense used by the writer to describe a completed action that occurred in the past, but which produced a state of being or a result that exists in the present. The emphasis on a perfect tense verb is not the past action, as much as it is the present state of affairs resulting from the past action. So the emphasis on begotten, perfect tense, is not that God did it, but what it means because He did it. That's what perfect tense means. It's an action that happened back here, but it has implications for right here and now and for all of eternity. This is perfect tense. Give me a north and south if you get it, east and west if you don't. Okay, I'm seeing more north and south than east and west, so I'm going to move on. All right? I just need, you need to understand before I move on though. It's the current state of affairs that matter. It's the current state of affairs that matter. So he's begotten him. He's literally the born son of God. A second point that comes out of verse 6 is that God expects the angels in heaven to worship Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 6. Let all God's angels worship him. This is really important. This is very telling. This is a very telling statement because worshiping anything or anyone but God is sin. 
Worshipping anything or anyone but God is sin. And yet we see right here that God not only expects all men to bow a knee to Jesus, but he expects the angels to fall down and worship him. Think about how telling this is. And, and a lot of people say Jesus never claimed to be God. He absolutely claimed to be God. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? But do you know what he did several times claiming to be God? Accepted worship without rebuking anybody. You remember the transfiguration? They're up on the mountain. It's right around the Feast of Booths. Jesus is transfigured. He's got a few disciples with him. They're like, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And they're like worshiping, right? Wait a minute. Great commission. Matthew chapter 28. Starting in verse 16. And they all came together at the place where he told them. And they worshiped him. And some doubted. Book of Revelation in the beginning of it. John, the apostle John, falls down as though dead at Jesus' feet and worships him. Jesus is accepting worship, but let me tell you something. Jesus knew that only God should be worshipped because we remember in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, Satan has just tempted Jesus. He said, listen, if you worship me, if you follow me, or if you, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything you see. This is like verse 8 and 9, right? It'll all be yours. Now, that's a pretty big story in and of itself. Some people say, well, Satan couldn't even offer that. Actually, he could. Right now, he's, he's got some rain here on the earth. But that's a sidebar. Jesus' response to this was, Be gone, Satan! For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Jesus knows that only God is to be worshipped. And yet he accepts worship repeatedly. You see why C.S. Lewis says that Jesus is either the devil of hell, a madman, or exactly who he said he was? A good moral teacher doesn't tell Satan, sorry dude, you can't be worshipped, but I can. And not be God. That's not, he's a liar then, right? Or he's crazy. This, this question from Matthew, though, is a good segue, or this quotation from Matthew is a good segue into the beginning of verse 7. Can you flip that? I'm, I don't know why I won't do it. It's a good segue into the beginning of verse 7. And so what we see here is Jesus is more than angels, right? He's more than angels for sure. Jesus' rebuke to Satan, quoted from Matthew 4.10, was because Satan wanted to receive worship. And Hebrews 1.7 affirms that angels are not worthy of worship, but instead they were created to serve God. Do you see that in verse 7? Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers of flame of fire. They were created to serve, not to be served and not to be worshipped. 
That was the big problem with Satan. Satan was an archangel who said he wanted to be worshipped. Who tried to put himself on the level of God. And God's response was to cast him out. It's a big deal here. The very thing that Satan was kicked out of heaven for is the very thing that Jesus is accepting. This idea of being worshipped and adored. It's really, it's really interesting here though as we go on and we look at verse 8 and 9 that while the angels are not worthy of worship, the Son is. The Son is worthy of worship. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, we're, the author of Hebrews is saying this psalm that's being referenced here is about the Son of God, is about Jesus Christ. Your throne, Jesus, God, Son of God, the only begotten, your throne, O God, is forever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, and therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond all your companions. So we have this intellectual understanding. I think that, you know, I'm not the greatest preacher in the world. But I think I've built, at least in my mind, maybe not in yours, a convincing theological argument from the scriptures that Jesus is in fact God. That the scriptures claim that. So we find ourselves at the point where we're asking this question, okay, how does this affect my life? How does this affect my life? Because isn't that what we talked about in the beginning is that we have this intellectual understanding and maybe we've moved it down into our heart. Maybe we've repented of our sins and put our trust in Jesus, believing that he's God. But beyond that, it's not really making a difference. What does it mean? What does it mean? If God expects the angels in heaven to worship the Son, shouldn't we worship Him as well? And I know what some of you are saying. That's what we're here today to do. That's what we're here today to do. Um, I want to suggest something to you today. God cares more about the rest of your week than you give him credit for. It's not just a Sunday morning thing. It's not just a Sunday morning thing. I mean, worship is singing. That's part of worship. Do you know that there's been there's some anecdotal evidence that a lot of people that have a long time in ministry see this evidence, and I, I don't know if there's ever been a study done on it. That's why I say it's anecdotal, right? That says that you know we have worship wars and worship wars inside of churches, right? No, we've got to stay traditional with the hymns and the organs and and that, and and then you got the guys that are saying no, we got to be contemporary, which is like '80s Maranatha praise, and then you've got guys like us that are going, no, we're going to be modern. We're not contemporary here. Contemporary means '80s Maranatha praise. 
We're modern. Right? We're modern. We're doing songs that were written this century. <laughs> so, which is, and, and we do some old ones too, and that's fine. Okay? But we have these worship wars. Anecdotal evidence suggests that the people who start the worship wars, wars are the people who don't worship at home. That's why they're so upset, because they have a style they like. And let me just tell you something. If you're a hymn lover, amen. Okay, it's cool. Worship with that. That's awesome. There's nothing wrong with hymns. I mean, some of them there are. But there's some modern songs there's some stuff wrong with too, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Some of the hymns are bad. Some of the modern stuff being written is bad too, right? Classic example of bad hymns. Anything A.B. Simpson wrote musically was bad. Theologically was awesome. The guy was a horrible musician. And I love A.B. Simpson, you know, but he wrote some, some real stinkers as far as the music goes. That's why a lot of Alliance people today actually go back and rewrite the music <laughs> to make it singable. But worship, you should be singing and worshiping. If singing is worship, that should be something that's happening outside of Sunday morning. That should be something that's taking place throughout the course of your life. You should not think it's weird when you hear a worship song outside of Sunday morning service. I have stood in the middle of the Cranberry Mall crying because of worship songs playing over the speaker system in the mall. Part of the reason I'm your pastor is because there was a David Crowder song playing in the Cranberry Mall when I was there. And God was saying, Jerry, are you listening? I'm like, yes, Lord. Singing is, is great. Worship is, a, is Bible reading. That's worship. If the only time that you crack the spine on your Bible is on Sunday morning, repent. Seriously. That's what the hone works for, is to try to help you to get into the Word of God. Just turn away from that and say, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to read my Bible outside of Sunday morning. I shouldn't find your Bible in the sanctuary. Some of you are like, well, I got a Bible for the pew, and I got a Bible for the car, and I got a Bible for home. You know? Seriously? Take it with you. I have two Bibles that I use. This one that stays right here on the podium, and I preach from it because it has one verse on each line, so I can always find my place. And then this one that's on my iPad that I use everywhere else. I carry it with me. I use it. Worship is serving. Like the vast majority of our congregation did last week. Our, our congregation heard the voice of God and they spoke and they said, yes, God wants us to do this. And it's serving. But it goes beyond Sunday morning. On the fifth Sunday. I think it's so neat. Erin McAdoo, she's on staff over at Clarion CMA. 
And when she first came on staff, she was Aaron Sable. She wasn't married yet. And she came to Sarah and I, and she said, hey, you want to go get some ice cream? We're like, yeah. She goes, well, let's go down to the sugar shack and get some. And I'm like, no, I know that there's an ice cream stand somewhere over in this area called the sugar shack, but the sugar shack in Clarion is a strip club. (laughs) We're like, Aaron, that is not an ice cream parlor. She's like, it's not? We're like, no. We told her what it was. She's like, oh, I'm embarrassed. Aaron and, and Sandy Anderson, who's the pastor's wife down in Moon Township now. Aaron and Sandy, though, that started something with them, and they actually started going out pretty regularly once every couple weeks to the sugar shack together. Two women, mature in their faith, loving the Lord, would go into the sugar shack and start serving these women, take them body care products, different things like that, loving on them. I know that some of you are like, what? Now, I don't recommend that the men do this. Okay, but I don't see an issue with a mature Christian lady going and reaching out to a woman of ill repute, right? Aaron was was sharing the story at Edinburgh camp this summer, and there was a lady who was there that nobody would have known that this was her past. She came to Aaron, she was crying, and she said, "Aaron, thank you for sharing this. I used to be." A dancer, an exotic dancer, a stripper. And it was because somebody came and served me like you are that I came out of that lifestyle and came to Christ. This is worship. This is worship. I know there's some of you who are thinking, but we're supposed to remain unstained. That's why I said the guys shouldn't do this ministry. (laughs) But you girls... You ladies can reach out like this. Now, I'm not saying that we've got to go start an exotic dancer ministry anytime soon, but I'm just saying it's an example of serving. That's worship. I love this one. And, and I so appreciate, we're going to have a really good time, you know, whenever we get to Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. This one's going to come up. Worship is tithing. The Hebrew word for tithe is masara. It literally means one-tenth. This is worship. When I tithe, when I give a tenth of all of my increase to God, I'm saying, Lord, I love you and I trust you. I have a big stack of bills right here that I need to pay. But I trust you. This is worship. By the way, I can guarantee you this is the case. You will start financially tithing before you start tithing your time. I guarantee you, I've never met anybody yet who gives one-tenth of their time that didn't start giving one-tenth of their money first. One-tenth of your time is over two hours every day. Set aside to serve God. Who's doing that? I mean, come on, I struggle with it sometimes. And I'm a pastor. Right? Anyways, that's worship. Worship is attending a small group. Being connected to other believers. 
In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we see that the church was committed to several things. One of the things they were committed to, it says that they were meeting together daily in homes. Now we've got a nice house. And we've got a really big formal living room. But you all cannot fit in it. And their houses back then were smaller than mine. So that tells me that small groups was part of what was going on. They were meeting. Did they do them with the same model that we do them now? No. And by the way, different churches do different models. And there's different models used inside the same churches. Right? So, but this is part of worship too. Genuine biblical fellowship. Growing in our faith with one another. This is worship. Worship is praying. It is my desire, it is my goal that in the next couple of years when we're together at an event, nobody says, Pastor, would you pray? That you just start praying. My prayers are not any more special to God than yours are. He hears you too. Praying is worship. Praying is acknowledging our dependence on God. If you're considering tithing, you will get a prayer life. I promise. <laughs> I could go on and on. Worship is etc., etc., etc. Right? According to Ephesians, worship is Looking carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the, Lord, or what the will of the Lord is. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. And that is actually part of your homework for this week. And we'll get to the homework later. And in Romans, we hear this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Can I just tell you today, I want to tell you the difference between walking as wise the difference between walking as wise or unwise versus the difference between right and wrong. I do not believe that mature Christians ask the question, is this right or wrong? If you're asking that question, you're, you're not, I'm not saying you're not mature all the time, but that is not a mature question to ask. That is an infantile question to ask. The scripture tells us, hey, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Right? I mean, I can tell you right now, the elders believe that that's not a, a, a valid question to ask because of something they've asked me to do. I have this enormous window into my office. Not because it's sin for a lady to be inside of that office and me be on that side of that office doing counseling, but because it's unwise. They don't want me to make a right or wrong decision. They want me to make a wise decision. 
It's not a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of what is wise or unwise. But church, I believe that a lot of times we live our lives based upon, well, it's right, it's okay, and therefore I can do it. Grow up in the faith. Stop acting, stop. Can I get an interpretation, please? I told you, Mark, if somebody spoke in tongues, I'd call for an interpretation, and there you go. <laughs> oh, the Lord gave me the interpretation. Here we go. So, <laughs> Start saying, is this wise or unwise? Do we need to ask questions? Absolutely. But I need to ask, is this wise or unwise? Because let me tell you, a series of unwise choices will lead you right to sin's doorstep where it's really hard to turn around. I don't know anybody who ever, you know, jumped right into an affair. It was unwise choices that led them to that moment. Maybe they worked late with somebody that they shouldn't have. Was it a sin to work late? No. But maybe, they, maybe it was unwise. Maybe they went out to dinner afterwards with them and it wasn't sin to go eat because we've got to eat, but it was unwise. Maybe they said, well, you know what? I'll take you home. It'll be okay. But they lived in a rough neighborhood and so they said, you know what? I'll walk you up to the door. Sin or righteousness? Hey, it doesn't matter, but it's unwise because at the door, there was this little hug, good night, that lasted too long, that turned into a kiss, that turned into an invitation into the house. Listen to me. Mature Christians don't ask whether it's right or wrong. That is baby Christianity. Mature Christians ask if it is wise or unwise. And if it is unwise, we stay away from it. All things are lawful, yet not all things are profitable. Something may be morally acceptable, but it is still a bad choice. We're not the best choice. If we really believe that Jesus is God, then it should be reflected in a lifestyle that embraces worship in every area. The evidence of such a life is one that seeks to honor God with every decision by making the best choice in any situation. I make no apology for this. The Christian and Missionary Alliance is part of the holiness movement that started in the late 1800s. Inside of that group of the holiness movement, you had groups like the Assemblies of God, the Nazarene Church, the Christian and Missionary Alliance. The Assemblies of God and the Christian and Missionary Alliance were the exact same group. The Assemblies peeled off and started denomination first on one thing. They said... You have to speak in tongues as evidence of being filled with the Spirit. The Alliance said, no, you don't. We believe that that is an evidence and it's a valid gift, but we don't believe you have to. Personal holiness was the driving factor that went with all of this, all of these groups. That God cares how we live our lives. God cares how you live your life. It's not a means to Him. The means to him was what we've been preaching on the last few weeks. Love and grace. His unconditional acceptance of you because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's how we get to him. But if we're in a relationship with him, shouldn't it be reflected in our life? Now you've got to understand, 
I was a little skeptical about preaching this sermon this morning. Because I'm like, boy, Lord, this is really kind of a hard turn from the direction we were going. And as I, and I, but I went through and everything and I, I put it all down as I felt like the Lord was leading me. And as soon as I got done, as soon as I got done, within seconds, literally, the order of service came through to me. And Mark, as he felt like the Lord was leading him, chose for a closing song that pretty much preaches this exact same sermon. That God cares how we live. And I'm like, okay, Lord. I sat there at my desk crying. I'm a crybaby sometimes. You know? And I sat there, I'm like, all right. And I made sure I told Mark. Because I wanted Mark to know, Mark, I believe that you're hearing from the Lord in this. It really helped me out today. God cares how we live our lives. We've got to start living as people who are called of God and to, to be salt and light in the world. There has to be a difference in us. We are part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God cares about our actions. But I know that it's kind of hard to, hard to swallow that. You know, when we talk about the love of God, we talk about grace, we talk about forgiveness. I intentionally chose only New Testament passages this week. You know, I gave you the article on the very first week that I preached that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, same God, same standards. But I don't think that everybody's convinced, so I picked nothing but New Testament this week. Monday is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. Tuesday is Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Wednesday, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. Thursday, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Friday, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. Saturday, Philippians 2, 12 through 16. These are all like uh, stop sinning passages. <laughs> right? Saints who sometimes sin. Right? We're saints who sometimes sin. And the scriptures tell us stop. Now, you can't do this by an act of your will. That comes only through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so you may read these and you may try to do this over the next couple of weeks and you may come and you say, Pastor, I've been trying to apply your sermon and I just keep falling down, just keep falling down, just keep, hey, at that point we're going to say, well, have you ever been baptized in God's Spirit? I think there's a lot of Christians who haven't been baptized in God's Spirit. I know that there's this theology out there in the world that says when you get saved, you get all of God's Spirit that there is to get. And to that I say, That's the technical term for poppycock. Right? So, there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that. Yes, God's Spirit comes into you. Yes, you're born again. Yes, you come alive to Christ. But if the disciples were born again, then why did Jesus tell them not to leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came upon them? Why... Why, in Acts chapter 19, 
where there are a group of people who had heard about Jesus, who had repented and put their trust in Jesus, were struggling in their faith, and they said to them, did you guys hear about the baptism of the Spirit? And they're like, no, we didn't hear about that. What's that? They teach them about it. Bam. They get filled with the Spirit. Whoop. And they're walking. Now look, if you're not a Spirit-filled Christian, it doesn't mean you're a second-rate Christian. It just means nobody's taught you. Right? You're still dearly loved of God. But we'll talk about that. If you're struggling and you're trying to apply this and you can't do it, hey, it's okay. The theme of, these, of this week's homework passages are this. God cares deeply about our conduct because our conduct is how we worship Him. Let me give you one closing example and then we'll pray. I believe in the gift of tongues. I believe that if somebody spoke in tongues in here right now, I'd call for an interpretation. If there wasn't an interpretation, I would say, well, this is out of order, but I don't know who's out of order, the speaker or the interpreter. Because sometimes you get around people that are, they've got the interpretation, they're afraid to give it. You know? Okay, so we believe in that. And the Alliance believes in that, right? But let me just, I'm going to just pick on my wife because I know that she knows I don't feel this way about her. My wife gets up and she speaks in tongues and this just powerful tongues message comes out and she walks out and lives like hell Monday through Saturday. Sorry, not buying. God cares about our conduct. If you're speaking in tongues and going crazy and worshiping on Sunday, but you're living like the devil Monday through Saturday, I've got an issue with that. I think God's got an issue with that because worship goes beyond Sunday morning. By the way, the Christian Missionary Alliance believes the true evidence of being filled with the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit out of Galatians chapter 5. Those are yours in increasing measure. Peace, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, etc., etc. That's what we really believe is the evidence. So let's look at our conduct. Let's pray. Father, I just come before you this morning and I ask that you would speak into hearts, speak into minds, and that lives would be transformed. Lord, I believe completely and totally that you care about our conduct. Lord, a message on living holy was not necessarily what I wanted to preach this Sunday. But I feel like you've affirmed that that's what's supposed to happen. And so I thank you for that. Lord, I ask that you would speak to your people today, that you would transform lives, and that everything we do out in the community with our families would all begin to be acts of worship and service to you so that people would see the change in us and know that you really do exist. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.